0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support.
1: Good evening. Tonight,
0: I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 11 and 12 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy.
1: So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter
0: Eleven Levin emptied his glass and they were silent for a while. There's one other thing I ought to tell you.
1: Do you know Voronsky? Stepan Arkadziewicz asked Levin. No, I don't.
0: Why do you ask? Give us another bottle, Stepan Arkadziewicz directed the Tartar, who was filling up their glasses and fidgeting round them just when he was not wanted. Why you ought to know Vronsky is that he's one of your rivals. Who's Voronsky? said Levin, and his face was suddenly transformed from the look of a childlike ecstasy, which Oblonsky had just been admiring, to an angry and unpleasant expression. Vronsky is one of the sons of Count Kirill Ivanovich Vronsky, and one of the finest specimens of the gilded youth of Petersburg. I made his acquaintance in Traver when I was there on official business and he came there for the levy of recruits. Fearfully rich, handsome great connections, an aide-de-camp, and with all that a very nice, good-natured fellow. But he's more than simply a good-natured fellow, as I've found out here. He's a cultivated man too, and very intelligent. He's a man who will make his mark. Levin scowled and was
1: dumb. Well, he turned up here soon
0: after you'd gone, and as I can see, he's over head and ears in love with Kitty, and you know
1: that her mother. Excuse me, but I
0: know nothing, said Levin, frowning gloomily. And immediately, He recollected his brother Nikolai and how hateful he was to have been able to forget
1: him. You wait a bit, wait
0: a bit, said Stepan Arkadyevich, smiling and touching his hand. I've told you what I know, and I repeat that in this delicate and tender manner. As far as one can conjecture, I believe the chances are in your favour. Levin dropped back in his chair. His face was pale. But I would advise you to settle the thing as soon as may be, pursued Dublinsky, filling up his glass. No, thanks. I can't drink any more, said Levin, pushing away his glass. I shall be drunk? Come, tell me how you are getting on, he went on, obviously anxious to change the conversation.
1: One word more. In
0: any case, I advise you to settle the question soon. Tonight, I don't advise you to speak, said Stepan Arkadyevich. Go round tomorrow morning, make an offer in due form, and God bless you. Oh, do you still think of coming to me for some shooting? Come next spring, do, said Levin. Now his whole soul was full of remorse that he had begun this conversation with Stepan Arkadyevitch. A feeling such as his was profaned by talk of the rivalry of some Petersburg officer, of the supposition and the counsels of Stepan Arkadyevitch. Stepan Arkadyevitch smiled. He knew what was passing in Levin's soul. I'll come some day, he said. But women, my boy, they're the pivot everything turns upon. Things are in a bad way with me, very bad. And it's all through women. Tell me frankly now, he pursued, picking up a cigar and keeping one hand on his glass. Give
1: me your advice. Why, what is it? I'll tell you. Suppose you're married. You love your wife, but you're fascinated
0: by another woman. Excuse me but I'm absolutely unable to comprehend how, just as I can't comprehend how I could now, after my dinner, go straight to a baker's shop and steal a roll. Stepan Arkadziewicz's eyes sparkled more than usual. Why not? A roll will sometimes smell so good one can't resist it. Himleish, ist wenn ich Meinen ich rish Aber doch wenns nich gelungen. Hat ich och ret husbusch plantier. As he said this. Stepan Arkadjavich subtly smiled. Levin, too,
1: could not help smiling. Yes,
0: but joking apart, resumed Stepan Arkadjavich, you must understand that the woman is a sweet, gentle, loving creature, poor and lonely,
1: and has sacrificed everything.
0: Now, when the thing's done, don't you see, can one possibly cast her off? Even supposing one parts from her, so as not to break up one's family life. Still, can one help feeling for her, setting her on her feet, softening her lot? Well. You must excuse me there, you know to me all women are divided into two classes, at least no, truer to say, there are women and there are, I've never seen exquisite fallen beings and I never shall see them. But such creatures as that painted Frenchwoman at the counter with the ringlets are vermin to my mind, and all fallen women are the same. But the Magdalene? Ah, drop that. Christ would never have said those words if he had known that they would be abused. Of all the gospel, those words are the only ones remembered. However, I'm not saying so much what I think as what I feel. I have a loathing for fallen women. You're afraid of spiders, and I of these vermin. Most likely you've not made a study of spiders and don't know their character, and so it is with me. It's very well for you to talk like that. It's very much like that gentleman in Dickens who used to fling all difficult questions over his right shoulder. But to deny the facts is no answer. What's to be done? You tell me that, what's to be done? Your wife gets older while you're full of life. Before you've time to look round, you feel that you can't love your wife with love, however much you may esteem her. And then all at once love turns up and you're done for. Done for, Stepan Arkachevich said
1: with weary despair. Levin half smiled. Yes, you're done for, resumed Oblonsky. But what's to be done? Don't steal rolls. Stepan Arkachevich laughed outright. Oh
0: moralist, but you must understand, there are two women, one insists only on her rights and those rights are your love, which you can't give her, and the other sacrifices everything for you and asks for nothing, what are you to
1: do, how are you to act? There's a fearful
0: tragedy in it. If you care for my profession of faith as regards that, I'll tell you that I don't believe there was any tragedy about it, and this is why. To my mind, love, both the sorts of love which you remember Plato defines in his banquet, served as the test of man. Some men only understand one sort and some only the other. And those who only know the platonic love have no need to talk of tragedy. In such love there can be no sort of tragedy. I'm much obliged for the gratification My humble respects.
1: That's all the tragedy. And in
0: platonic love, There can be no tragedy. Because in that love, All is clear and pure. Because. At that instant, Levin recollected his own sins, And the inner conflict he had lived through. And he added, unexpectedly,
1: but perhaps you are right, very likely, I don't know, I don't know.
0: It's this, don't you see, said Stepan Arkadjavich, you're very much all of a piece, that's your strong point and your failing. You have a character that's all of a piece, and you want the whole of life to be of a piece too, but that's not how it is. You despise public official work because you want the reality to be invariably corresponding all the while with the aim, and that's not how it is. You want a man's work, too, always to have a defined aim, and love and family life always to be undivided. And that's not how it is. All the variety, all the charm, all the beauty of life is made up of light and shadow. Levin sighed and made no reply. He was thinking of his own affairs, and did not hear Oblinsky. And suddenly, both of them felt that though they were friends, though they had been dining and drinking together, which should have drawn them closer, yet each was thinking only of his own affairs and they had nothing to do with one another. Oblinsky had more than once experienced this extreme sense of aloofness, instead of intimacy, coming on after dinner, and he knew what
1: to do in such cases. Bill,
0: he called, and he went into the next room. Where he promptly came across an aide-de-camp of his acquaintance and dropped into conversation with him about an actress and her protector. And at once, in the conversation with the aide-de-camp, Oblonsky had a sense of relaxation and relief after the conversation with Levin, which always put him to great mental and spiritual strain. When the Tartar appeared with a bill of twenty-six roubles and odd kopecks, besides a tip for himself, Levin, who would another time have been horrified, like any one from the country, at his share of fourteen roubles, did not notice, paid and set off
1: homewards to dress and go to the Shabatskys, there to decide his fate. Chapter 12
0: The young princess kitty Shabatskaya was eighteen. It was the first winter that she had been out in the world. Her success in society had been greater than that of either her elder sisters, and greater even than her mother had anticipated. To say nothing of the young men who danced at the Moscow balls being almost all in love with Kitty. Two serious suitors had already this first winter made their appearance. Levin and immediately after his departure, Count Voronsky. Levin's appearance at the beginning of the winter, his frequent visits and evident love for Kitty had led to the first serious conversations between Kitty's parents as to her future and to the disputes between them. The prince was on Levin's side. He said he wished for nothing better for Kitty. The princess for her part, going round the question in the manner peculiar to women, maintained that Kitty was too young. That Levin had done nothing to prove that he had serious intentions. that Kitty felt no great attraction to him and other side issues but she did not state the principal point which was that she looked for a better match for her daughter and that Levin was not to her
1: liking and she did not understand him.
0: When Levin had abruptly departed the princess was delighted and said to her husband triumphantly, You see, I was right. When Vronsky appeared on the scene, she was still more delighted, confirmed in her opinion that Kitty was to make not simply a good, but a brilliant match. In the mother's eyes, there could be no comparison between Vronsky and Levin. She disliked in Levin his strange and uncompromising opinions and his shyness in society, founded, as she supposed, on his pride and his queer sort of life, as she considered it, absorbed in cattle and peasants. She did not very much like it that he, who was in love with her daughter, had kept coming to the house for six weeks, as though he were waiting for something, inspecting, as though he were afraid he might be doing them too great an honour by making an offer, and did not realise that a man who continually visits a house where there is an unmarried girl, is bound to make his intentions clear. And suddenly, without doing so, he disappeared. It's as well he's not attractive enough for Kitty to have fallen in love with him, thought the mother, Vronsky satisfied all the mother's desires. Very wealthy, clever, of aristocratic family, on the high road to a brilliant career in the army and at court, and a fascinating man. Nothing better could be wished for. Vronsky openly flirted with Kitty at balls danced with her and came continually to the house consequently there could be no doubt of the seriousness of his intentions but in spite of that the mother had spent the whole of that winter in a state of terrible anxiety and agitation princess shabatskya had herself married thirty years ago her aunt arranged the match her husband about whom everything was well known beforehand had come looked at his future bride and been looked at the matchmaking aunt had ascertained and communicated their mutual impression That impression had been favourable. Afterwards, on a day fixed beforehand, the expected offer was made to her parents and accepted. All had passed very simply and
1: easily. So it seemed, at least, to the princess.
0: But over her own daughter... She had felt how far from simple and easy is the business, apparently so commonplace, of marrying
1: off one's daughter. The panics that had
0: been lived through, the thoughts that had been brooded over, the money that had been wasted, and the disputes with her husband, over marrying the two elder girls, Daria and Natalia. Now, since the youngest had come out, she was going through the same terrors, the same doubts, and still more violent quarrels with her husband than she had over the elder girls. The old prince, like all fathers indeed, was exceedingly punctilious of the score of the honour and reputation of his daughters. He was irrationally jealous over his daughters, especially over Kitty, who was his favourite. At every turn, he had scenes with the princess for compromising her daughter. The princess had grown accustomed to this already with her other daughters, but now she felt that there was more ground for the prince's touchiness. She saw that of late years much was changed in the manners of society, that her mother's duties had become still more difficult. She saw that girls of Kitty's age formed some sort of clubs, went to some sort of lectures, mixed freely in men's society, drove about the streets alone, many of them did not curtsy, and, what was the most important thing, all the girls were firmly convinced that to choose their husband was their own affair, and not their parents. Marriages aren't made nowadays as they used to be, was thought and said by all these young girls, and even by their elders. But how marriages were made now, the princess could not learn from anyone. The French fashion, of the parents arranging their children's future, was not accepted, it was condemned. The English fashion of the complete independence of girls was also not accepted, and not possible in Russian society. The Russian fashion of matchmaking by the offices of intermediate persons was for some reason considered unseemly. It was ridiculed by everyone and by the princess herself. But how girls were to be married and how parents were to marry them, no one knew. Everyone with whom the princess had chanced to discuss the matter said the same thing. Mercy on us, it's high time in our day to cast off all that old-fashioned business. It's the young people who have to get married, and not their parents, and so we ought to leave the young people to arrange it as they choose. It was very easy for anyone to say that who had no daughters, but the princess realised that in the process of getting to know each other, her daughter might fall in love, and fall in love with someone who did not care to marry her, or who was quite unfit to be her husband and however much it was instilled into the princess that in our times, young people ought to arrange their lives for themselves, she was unable to believe it, just as she would have been unable to believe that, at any time whatever, the most suitable playthings for children five years old ought to be to be a loaded pistol. And so the princess was more uneasy over Kitty than she had been over her elder sisters. Now she was afraid that Vronsky might confine himself to simply flirting with her daughter. She saw that her daughter was in love with him, but tried to comfort herself with the thought that he was an honourable man and would not do this. But at the same time, she knew how easy it is, with the freedom of manners of today, to turn a girl's head, and how lightly men generally regard such a crime. The week before, Kitty had told her mother of a conversation she had with Voronsky during a mazurka. The conversation had partly reassured the princess, but perfectly at ease she could not be. Vronsky had told Kitty that both he and his brother were so used to obeying their mother that they never made up their minds to any important undertaking, without consulting her. And just now I am impatiently awaiting my mother's arrival from Petersburg, as peculiarly fortunate, he told her. Kitty had repeated this without attaching any significance to the words but her mother saw them in a different light. She knew that the old lady was expected from day to day, that she would be pleased at her son's choice, and felt it strange that he should not make his offer through fear of vexing his mother. However, she was so anxious for the marriage itself and still more for relief from her fears, that she believed it was so. Bitter as it was for the princess to see the unhappiness of her eldest daughter, Dolly, on the point of leaving her husband. Her anxiety over the decision of her youngest daughter's fate engrossed all her feelings. Today, with Levin's reappearance, a fresh source of anxiety arose. She was afraid that her daughter, who had at one time, as she fancied, a feeling for Levin, might, from extreme sense of honour, refuse Vronsky, and that Levin's arrival might generally complicate and delay the affair so near being concluded. Why has he been here long? The princess asked about Levin as they returned home. He came today, Mama. There's one thing I want to say, began the princess, and from her serious and alert face, Kitty guessed what it would be.
1: Mama, she said, flushing hotly and turning quickly to her, please, please
0: don't say anything about that. I know, I know all about it. She wished for what her mother wished for, but the motives of her mother's wishes wounded her. I only want to say that to raise
1: hopes Mama, darling, for goodness sake, don't talk about it. It's so horrible to talk about it. I won't, said her mother,
0: seeing the tears in her daughter's eyes. But one thing, my love, you promised me you would have no secret from me. You won't. Never,
1: Mama. None, answered Kitty, flushing a little
0: and looking at her mother straight in the face. But there's no use in my telling you anything, and
1: I, I, if I wanted to, I don't know what to say or how, I don't know.
0: No. She could not tell an untruth with those eyes, thought the mother, smiling at her agitation and happiness. The princess smiled that what was taking place just now in her soul seemed to the poor child so immense and so important.